Matthew chapter 4 is our text. If you open your Bible there, we're studying the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. The topic, Jesus calls two sets of brothers to follow him. The title of our message, O brothers, come follow now. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we humble ourselves in prayer as we come before your word. We ask, Lord, that you would empower it, that you would bless it, that you would anoint it, that the words themselves would jump off the page and into our hearts, revealing the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's someone here, Lord, who doesn't know you in a saving way, that your Holy Spirit would take this passage, these words, and convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come so that they would humbly come to the cross, confessing their sins, repenting and believing. For those of us who do believe, Lord, I pray that we would be greatly encouraged, that we would be stirred up to take a stand for you, to live for you in, in a way, Lord, that is uh, a return to our first love if we've in fact left that. We would be what we like to call, Lord, on fire, burning with passion for Jesus Christ. Guide and direct us now, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. If you want to win at Monopoly, and who doesn't, the first thing you need to do is get over wanting to buy Boardwalk and Park Place. Forget about that. Try to get hotels on Illinois Avenue as fast as you can. In 1997, Dr. Irvin R. Hensel of Iowa State University had nothing better to do with a government grant, I guess. And so he listed the properties where people were more likely to land. The list he came up with in order, the top eight, Illinois Avenue, the B&O Railroad, Tennessee Avenue, New York Avenue, the Reading Railroad, St. James Place, Waterworks, Pennsylvania Avenue. I've never seen people take notes so quickly, but anyway. <laughs> if you're familiar with the game board, you might also notice that all three orange properties are on that list. That's due to their relationship to the jail square. Players emerging from lockup are more likely to land on that strip than in any other part of the board. Boardwalk and Park Place are conspicuously absent from that list. They might have the highest rent, but they simply don't have the traffic to win you the game. If I'm not mistaken, the cheapest property on the Monopoly board is Mediterranean Avenue at a cost of $60 in funny money. Now to our text in Matthew. The Jews were expecting their Messiah. <laughs> I'm doing a segue here. The Jews were expecting their Messiah. They assumed he would establish himself as king in Jerusalem. It was the equivalent to them of boardwalk. Thank you, those of you who are paying attention. And not playing Monopoly on your Android phone. But anyway, Jesus instead ended up in Capernaum in the region of Galilee. Definitely not boardwalk. It wasn't even Mediterranean Avenue. It's a notorious region with a heavy Gentile influence that made it undesirable for Jews. It was called a region of darkness where people lived under the shadow of death. It was the Riverdale of its day. I'm sorry. 
is there any other? I'll pick on any city if you want to suggest a different city. Is there another city that, huh? Yeah, I don't even know where that is. That's like that brother speaking in tongues. But anyway. Why did Jesus establish himself there? It was because after his offer of the kingdom to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea had been rejected, he went there. In fact, the entire ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus in the south seemed to have failed. Have you ever felt like what you are doing for the Lord has failed or is failing? Then pay attention to the study today. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, on the surface, you might think that the kingdom of heaven has failed, but number two, in your service, you must trust that the kingdom of heaven always prevails. Let's take a look at some failure in verses 12 through 16, or what appears to be failure, I should say. Matthew just told the story of Jesus' triumph over the devil in the desert. On the heels of that great victory came what looked to be notable failure. Verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Matthew's gospel, we're finding, is topical, not chronological. It doesn't follow a chronological order. About a year transpired between verse 11 and verse 12. The impression of John's preaching and his baptism was wearing off. Herod Antipas, who a few months earlier would not have dared to do so, had John the Baptist arrested and imprisoned where he was awaiting his beheading. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of the Lord, to open the door of Jerusalem and Judea for his coming. At first he met with great success. Tens or perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people came to repent and be baptized. Then, just like that, he was thrown in jail. Verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus first went to his hometown in Nazareth of Galilee. Now this little phrase, and leaving Nazareth, definitely would not fly in a no-spin zone. It is a glossing over of a tremendous event. The circumstances of Jesus leaving Nazareth were extreme. One Saturday in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus reads from Isaiah and claimed to be the person spoken of in that text. Luke tells the story, uh, the after story this way in chapter 4. He says, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust Jesus out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now that doesn't sound too successful, does it? In the Gospel of Mark, we're told further, he could do no mighty work there in Nazareth except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Do you understand what I'm saying? John is arrested, Jesus goes to Nazareth, he can't do very much there and he's almost killed for preaching and then he ends up in Capernaum. It says, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, these were the tribes of Israel who had inherited for their possession the outermost parts of land that bordered Gentile nations. 
during the conquest of the land under Joshua, these tribes had failed to completely drive out the Gentiles to their own detriment because there was a Gentile influence, a pagan influence then in their area. Over the centuries, they would constantly be the first to be invaded until by the time of Jesus, the time we're reading of here, there was a heavy Gentile population and influence. John was in prison and Jesus seemed on the ropes. Was all this a spiritual failure? Well, it seemed like it was, but no, it wasn't because it was foreseen by the prophet Isaiah centuries before. In verse 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. The region was so influenced by them, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles, even though it was Jewish. If you lived there, you were in the shadow of death, sitting in spiritual darkness. Jews who lived in Galilee of the Gentiles were considered outcasts by other Jews. Gentiles were considered outlaws from the point of view that they had nothing to do with the law of Moses. Matthew drew upon this text from Isaiah to show that not only was it not a failure that their Messiah was in Capernaum, they ought to have expected him to go there. Isaiah had looked down through history and had foreseen the Messiah setting up his headquarters there. He would be the great light bringing them the dawn of a new era, the kingdom of heaven. You and I, it's not our fault we don't read the gospel of Matthew from a Jewish perspective. We're just not Jews. A Jew, however, would demand some reasonable explanation of why the Messiah was in Capernaum and not Jerusalem. You see, Matthew is presenting Jesus as their Messiah. He's the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, properly introduced by John the Baptist, the real forerunner of of the Messiah. He beat up the devil in the wilderness. So what's he doing in Capernaum? Well, Isaiah said he would end up there. And a a, a Jew would be somewhat satisfied with that explanation, seeing that it was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, you and I, we have the benefit of the completed word of God. We got the whole story. We've read the ending. We know, for example, that perilous times are in store for us during the last days. The whole time from, uh, of the whole church age is the last days in which perilous times have come. We know that the church age is mostly a time when we can expect tribulation and persecution. Now, we don't get a whole lot of it in the United States. I mean, we have our share of of suffering at some level, but we're not really being persecuted and suffering the kind of tribulation that typically has happened over the centuries uh, with the church and is happening right now in other places in the world. But we're to expect that. We, We read about it. Jesus promised that. He said, in the world you will have what? tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so we read the Bible, we expect that. But we also know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. We know that the Lord is coming to resurrect and rapture his church, that he will return after the seven-year great tribulation to establish the kingdom that he had to delay when the Jews rejected him in his first coming. We know that there will be new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell in righteousness forever and ever. So we have that. We have the entire story. And we're pretty confident 
that all of this is going to happen just the way the Lord has set out. But today, right now, you may feel a complete spiritual failure. Things might not be working out the way you thought they would. As a, You might even be honest enough to suggest that God's promises to you seem to have failed. Or at least you can't see how they could possibly ever be fulfilled given your situation. And I think, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I know that people feel this way as Christians because you've told me over the years, and I felt this way. Well, you just think, hey, it just doesn't seem to be working out. That's because no one of us can see how all things are working together for the good. It's far too complex. We must patiently wait on the Lord. You all know that verse, right? It's your favorite verse from Romans. All things work together for the good, for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. But what I don't like about that verse is there's no time element to it. You look in the margin of your Bible, you know, has those margin notes. You keep looking for a marginal note that says, in the next 20 minutes. For all things work together for good, star, in the next 20 minutes. The next 20 days. In the next 20 years. Before I die. There's no promise of when and how it's going to work together for the good. Just that we believe that God loves us so much and cares for us so much, enough to send his son to die for us and rise from the dead, all things have to work together for the good to them that love him and are the called according to the purpose. But I don't see it all the time in my life. I can say that a text like this, which reveals that our Lord himself, as well as his forerunner, John the Baptist, seemed on the surface to have failed. One of the most poignant scenes in all of the Gospels is John the Baptist in prison. John the Baptist, a guy who pointed his finger at you and told you to repent no matter who you were, who was in prison because he told the ruler, Herod, that he was wrong for having sex with his brother's wife, sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Is it a moment of weakness? Does he think he's failed? It's a human moment. Have you ever had a moment like that? If you say no, you're a liar. Unbelief can seem to derail God's plans, sin and unbelief, but they never ultimately can overrule his gracious, merciful dealings with us. He who has begun a good work in you will definitely complete it no matter the obstacles. And that's why in your service you must trust that the kingdom of heaven prevails and press on. Verse 17 through 25. Now Jesus had waited 30 years living in relative obscurity to be identified for who he really was. Then he'd gone out into a barren wilderness, a no man's land, to engage the devil himself in a fierce single combat as a man, not as God, against the devil. He emerged from it victorious, having won each round of the fight unanimously while hungry at the end of a 40-day fast. He began to minister in Jerusalem and Judea. In the year Matthew overlooks, for example, Jesus went into the temple and for the first of two times in his ministry overturned the tables of the money changers. 
But for all that, John was seized and imprisoned and Jesus moved back home to Nazareth where the townspeople didn't believe in him and they tried to murder him. Finding himself in Capernaum, Jesus seemed undaunted by these events. Today we would want to send him to a pastor's rejuvenation seminar. We'd think he was burned out. We'd be worried about him mentally. But Jesus moved to Capernaum and in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message wherever he was, however it was received. Now we took one entire message to discuss repentance. It's a change of mind towards sin and the Savior that results, if it's genuine, in a change of behavior. It is not a work. It is not something you must do in order to be saved. You don't go change your behavior in order to get saved. You realize that you're a sinner in need of salvation and you come to the cross, uh, you come to Jesus Christ and you repent. You find yourself going in a whole new direction. It's the only thing that you can do. At the same time, God doesn't force you to repent and no one can repent for you. Grace works upon your heart and your will is freed to respond yes or no to God. Jesus had lost none of his zeal to serve his father. Circumstances surrounding his ministry did not deflate him. Even though he had been rejected in Jerusalem and Judea and nearly murdered in Nazareth, the gospel had not failed. How would you like to go to a reunion where they try to murder you? Some of you do family reunions in the summer, right? I mean, you go, you feel like you want to murder them. I know that. I've heard those stories. But let's say you went to a family reunion and say, hey, I'm a Christian now. And they took you to a high hill and they said, yeah, we're going to push you over. We're done listening to this stuff. You'd be a little bit troubled. But Jesus just walked through the midst of them. He went to the next town, Capernaum, and he set up shop. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I can't stress enough that this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is a declaration of war against the God of this world and the kingdom of darkness that he rules. Jesus was making an advance against the devil to save souls like you and I and to set captives free. He understood there would be skirmishes and battles along the way that would call for adjustments in his methods, like where he would live, but that could not prevail against his message. Today, after an event like Nazareth, we would be looking for a more seeker-sensitive message. Maybe I shouldn't tell people I'm the Messiah because they're going to want to kill me. I'll sneak up on them. Jesus said, hey, people need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand no matter how they respond to it. Now, he remained so confident in that message, he started to recruit others to help him to officially spread that message. If you own a failing business, you don't usually go out and hire people. It's a sign of success or of intended success. And so Jesus said, hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I need help to spread this message. It's too glorious. And so in verse 18, and Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. 
If you read the Gospel of John, you find that Andrew had already introduced Peter to Jesus sometime during the year that Matthew skips. A lot of that year is in the first four chapters of the Gospel of John. And Andrew had already brought Peter to Jesus. There's a third calling of these guys later on when Jesus makes them apostles. Charles Spurgeon summarizes these three events by saying they were first converted, then they were called, and then they were commissioned. Jesus called them suddenly and profoundly to follow him. They would understand that to mean that they would accompany him, that they would serve him, that they would learn from him, or as we summarize it today, that they would be his disciples. They were fishermen. Jesus would make them fishers of men. It's a great illustration, but just one of many that describe the work of the gospel and the workers. What I get out of this is that Jesus meets you right where you are and calls you to serve him. He didn't say, for example, you are fishermen and as soon as you finish seminary, I can use you to serve me. Am I against formal seminary? Not really. Not really. It's just that in our culture, we assume that if someone is called, they require formal training before they can be truly useful to the Lord. We may not admit it, but that's, that's kind of the general cultural norm. Oh, you feel a call to the ministry? You need to get formal training by a recognized school in order to qualify for the ministry. That's just how we do it. I'm against or maybe aghast at that trend that overlooks the anointing of the Holy Spirit in favor of some type of formal training that's been developed by well-meaning men who nevertheless are ignoring the Holy Spirit. I, I could name a number of Christian colleges who I still think are good Christian colleges who were founded by men who believed and, and understood the absolute power of God the Holy Spirit and spoke of things like the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Uneducated men who founded the college. And now those colleges have turned all the way around and they thought, well, having begun in the Spirit, we need to be made perfect in the flesh. We don't really see the baptism with the Holy Spirit as necessary anymore. Our founder didn't know what he was talking about even though one of them was one of the greatest revivalists of the 20, 20th century. And so we, we have this understanding. It took me a few, actually, you know, as rude as I can be, it took me a few years to get over people asking me where I went to seminary and having to admit I didn't go nowhere. <laughs> Especially other ministers. When I first moved to Hanford at Calvary was kind of an unknown thing, you know, and churches didn't meet in YMCAs and things like that. They were just all denominational churches and some of them were good ones. I'm not saying they weren't, but guys, you know, you get together with other ministers and, and uh, they would say, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, where'd you go to seminary? Uh, didn't. What? Didn't go to seminary. Oh, so Bible college? No, no Bible college. Okay. I don't need to talk to you anymore that, you know. This is a failure. Uh, this is an epic fail, they would say. You know? so, uh, so that's the deal. One of my favorite lines in all the book of Acts, it has to be, everybody's, it's when the religious leaders can't figure out how the disciples are ministering with boldness and power. 
And they get together and they say, it's, here it is, Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, who we just met, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And so these guys who were schooled, the religious leaders, politically connected, smart guys, they weren't dumb, they're smart guys, they got into a corner and they said, how were these guys doing this? And they said, well, let's make a notation that they were with Jesus. The only thing we can figure out about these guys is that they were with Jesus. And now they're turning the world upside down. You and I can be with Jesus, right? It's the easiest thing in the world. Unschooled, ordinary men, women, and children are never to be thought of as spiritually deficient. Just be with Jesus and he will use you. Now Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. It was a promise. And that made it his responsibility to teach them and to equip them for their calling. All they had to do was follow him. He said, this is what I'm going to do. It's, you know, today we would say, he that began a good work in you will perform it. It's up to him. Jesus called another set of brothers that already knew him, who had already been converted. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now the emphasis of the two accounts seems to be the sudden radical departure of these men from their everyday lives and livelihood to follow Jesus. Put yourself as much as possible in the sandals of these four fishermen. The kingdom of heaven had been announced by the rightful herald. The king had come on the scene. You had already met him and you were ready to take your place in the kingdom he would establish thinking that he would do it on David's throne in Jerusalem. Then suddenly John's preaching started to wear off John was in prison. Jesus moved north and was nearly killed in the synagogue of his hometown. In Capernaum, in the most unlikely place imaginable to you as a Jew, Jesus walking by one day calls you to follow him in furthering the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Would you suddenly and radically depart from your life and livelihood? They did. I have to give these guys kudos. This was a real step of faith. The truth is, though, every day Jesus calls you and I to suddenly and radically follow him to further the kingdom. It may not be a call to leave everything behind and go into full-time Christian work. It's probably not going to be that. It's mostly going to be a call to be obedient right where you are, at home, at work, in school, It's a call to speak up and take a stand, to be stirred up, to step forward, and to serve as unto the Lord right where you're at. So, you know, this idea that Jesus, you know, they were fishermen and then they dropped their nets. It's like those shows, you know, hands up. Your time is up, you know, don't touch another piece of food, you know, and, and, and they followed him. It gives us the impression that, uh, you know, that that's what it means to be a disciple, is to just go home right now, liquidate everything, and go out onto the mission field. And, and then there's part of you that thinks, well, I, I'm not really going to do that, so I guess I'm just a second-class Christian. I guess I'll always just kind of live in this, in this nebula. Well, that's not true. Now, some people are called to give up everything, sometimes all at once, sometimes over a period of time, and to go into what we would call vocational ministry. 
But all of us should be ready at all times to let go of something and serve the Lord right where we're at. The Puritans called it vocational ministry. Not that you change your vocation and be a minister, but that you understand your vocation is your ministry. So wherever you are, home, at work, in school, at play, that's where Jesus is asking you to minister for him. I had one of the dear saints, first service, an elderly lady come up and she said that her neighbor, a young man came up and, and just out of nowhere, she doesn't think she's ever even talked to him, said, you do a lot of reading, don't you? And she goes, well, yeah, I, I do. And he goes, I bet you read the Bible all the time because you're always going to church. And then he just walked away. And I'm thinking, what kind, I mean, she's witnessing to him without even, she, just, she gets in her car and goes to church. And this kid is troubled because he, she reads a lot and reads the Bible and God is using it. I mean, it's crazy, but that's what we're talking about. So now don't, don't get me wrong. I think sometimes more people need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit saying, you just need to leave what you're doing. This is crazy. This, I've got something else for you and you're just not listening because you haven't achieved the goals that you set for yourself. I think there needs to be more of that. But you don't have to think, well, it's all or nothing all the time. There's an area where we really live. Quite honestly, we're a church, come together as a church. Other churches do the same thing. God, if we're going to come together as a group of people, God's going to raise up some ministers, some, some people to teach so that you can be taught to do what? Be built up to go out into the world and do the work of the ministry, which is right where you're at. And so Jesus, this is beautiful. Jesus says, hey, I have a message that is never gonna change, and I don't care in one sense how it's received. This is the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and I'm gonna call you to help me spread that message as an ordinary, untrained human being. You want, to listen, you want to get more training? Listen to Bible studies, go to college, that's great. But I want to use you starting today, right now, right where you're at. Verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Historians describe Galilee as consisting of about 200 villages, each with a population of several hundred or up to 15,000. Jesus went about all Galilee for the next 16 months, ministering to as many as 3 million Jews and Gentiles. He would teach in their synagogues. Of course, those in the synagogues were Jews or they were Gentile converts to Judaism called proselytes. He probably taught the way that he had taught in Nazareth, showing that the scripture was being fulfilled by him. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom is a general summary of his ministry, but might describe Jesus more in settings outside of uh, the synagogue. And we see that healing is a prominent part of his ministry. The scope of his healing ministry is amplified in verse 24. It says, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, he healed them. You don't need to analyze each of the conditions beyond seeing that some were physical, others were supernatural, and sometimes there was a combination of the physical and the supernatural. The takeaway from this description is that Jesus could and did heal everyone from everything. There were no incurable conditions from any cause. We'll talk more about his healings as we go on. 
Scholars aren't completely sure what is meant by Syria, but it's safe to say these were Gentile territories. Salvation may be to the Jew first, but by his choice of ministering in and around Galilee, Jesus was able to demonstrate that God was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and that the gospel was a universal message of salvation for the entire human race. Verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes again were being affected. Once again, there was an initial outward success. I don't need to remind you that for all the initial outward success, in the end, everyone would scatter. The crowds would turn hostile. They would ask for Jesus to be crucified. Judas would betray him. Peter would deny him. Only John of all the apostles would be there with him at the foot of the cross. The truth of the gospel does not depend on its outward success at any one point in time. In almost any of the accounts we have of saints that have preceded us, there is what appears at least for a time to be failure. And that means that you and I are going to feel those things as well. But every time, without fail, God prevails. Have you heard the saying, I don't like it, but you've probably heard this, that the church is always one generation, see I held up two fingers, the church is always one generation away from extinction. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a rally, you know, like, hey, do your job, Christian, because if you don't witness, and, and if no Christians witness, then the church is going to go down the tubes. There won't be any church in the next generation. Well, I understand that as a motivator. It's a bad motivator because it's not true. Why tell people something that's not true to motivate them to the truth? Because Jesus said what about the church? The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The church is going to succeed. It may succeed in a small way from a, a human point of view, but it's going to succeed. God's kingdom will prevail, no matter what the outward failure seems to be at any one particular time. All things really are working together for the good. God really will complete the good work he's begun in you. You are predestined to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. You will awaken in eternity in his likeness. A mansion is under construction for you in heaven. In the meantime, don't allow anything to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. These circumstances, these outward things, no matter how heavy they might be, no matter how discouraging they might be, God's kingdom always prevails.